Welcome to Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. Hey everybody, this episode of Working Dog Radio is brought to you in part by our friends at Ray Allen Manufacturing. Everything you need for dogs, whether it's working dogs, pet dogs, sport, anything, rayallen.com, the best in the business. Uh, check them out. We got a discount code, Working Dog Radio, for 10% off. Another one of our favorite partnerships is with the one and only dog trainer. These guys are producing some amazing tools in the dog training world. Everything from e-collars, GPS tracking, ball training, it was electronic, and it goes on dogs. Go to Dogtra. They're revolutionizing the way you communicate with your dog. Head them up at dogtra.com. Use the discount code WDR10 for 10% off a single item over 200 bucks. The biggest and baddest conference in canine anywhere in the United States is HITS. Every year, each and every year, hundreds and hundreds of vendors, thousands of attendees, the best instructors around. It got moved because of COVID. Um, it's going to be July 7th through the 9th in 2021. Check it out. HITS, letter K number nine dot net to get signed up. You can't go wrong. HITS K nine dot net. Let's see you there next year. Yeah, speaking of some guys that are going to be there next year, the Kinetic Dog Food guys, fueling a working dog can be tough, but they need high-quality food to give them the energy and the nutrients that require they that they require for the work that we ask them to do. Kinetic Dog Food is a great balance of healthy meats and grains and is specifically made for working and sporting dogs. Be sure to hit them up at kineticdogfood.com. Easily, hands down, the best product we've ever represented on this podcast is Quick Derm by Vet Care. Ted and I use it in the kennel on our dogs when they get goofy injuries and ourselves when we also get goofy in injuries. They have a discount code for us, 10WDR for 10% off your first order. Check them out at vetcare.us. All right, everybody, Working Dog Radio, we are back. Video broadcasting the bite, uh, video and audio um, on our YouTube channel. If you do not uh, subscribe yet, please go check out Working Dog Radio on YouTube. Hit that like and subscribe. Check it out. Uh, we're pulling clips. You get to see my ugly face and Ted's, you know, gorgeous man beard thing going on there. And uh, speaking of Ted right. from Tulsa, Oklahoma, what's up, buddy? Uh, it is. Uh, yeah, I'm just doing handler school, doing dog stuff. We delivered a dog today to uh, Weatherford, Oklahoma. Um, single purpose dog. She, uh, her name is Mama. Uh, drug dog. She's going to do an experienced handler. It's going to be great. Little GSD. And she is going, her handler is a fantastic person and finds a ton of drugs. Uh, so it'll be really good. I'm, I'm, I'm happy about that. I've still got um, Chris here from Plainfield. He's going to be with me until uh, man, like mid January. He's going to go to the HRD in Miski, by the way, 11th to the 13th. Uh, it's going to be his, like his, his graduation week, but uh, we worked on outs today with Jesse and God bless that fucking dog bites hard my three fingers on both hands are numb i did some outing in the box like like we teach dudes at the decoy schools and in uh, hrd seminars and geez i had him out in, in like nine reps but those were rough nine reps that dog bites super hard and i think i was using like an intermediate or like a puppy sleeve or something i just grabbed it it was in the detection building i'm like oh this will work no i i i chose poorly it was it was awful what are you doing uh same thing uh handler school going on um got three handlers in it um uh i mentioned on the last episode that i probably was gonna have to replace a dog out of the uh right out of it yeah i, I decided today we're probably gonna do that so i gotta call the admins tomorrow and let them know hey oh boy's gonna be here a little bit longer because i gotta switch him to another dog um it's it's really weird man it was uh 
like I told you, and I've told everybody, I had two dogs trained for right-handed people. They sent left-handed uh, handlers. Right. Not a big deal, really. The one dog rocking it. The, the other dog, um, and because we have a green handler and he can't, he sucks with the leash like all green handlers do. Uh, it's it's just confusing him so much the dog because he's super handler focused. So if it's confusing, he just sits and looks at the kid. He's like, "Fuck it." Um, he, I think he was hammered on a little bit overseas. Uh, so on some trying to get some high level competition obedience in him, but well before my vendor got him, before he came to me. So his default move is, is uh, to do nothing, only on detection. That's it. He he does tracking good. Rockstar bite dog. I'm gonna try to see if anybody wants a single purpose patrol dog, maybe a SWAT dog or something. Uh, rocks the bite work does really well. Just it's not worth it because where he's gonna go dope is what they're really gonna need him for, and he's no longer uh, even interested in trying. He's just confused because he's working another direction, and the kids just uh, a leash shit show. So yeah, it sucks. Um, yeah. Yeah, so we're going to finish up these handler schools, and then I've got some dudes from uh, Missouri, Kansas, and another, I think another Oklahoma, yeah, another Oklahoma dog. Um, and then I got another dude coming up tomorrow, so uh, from one of the counties down south of me to work on some stuff. So busy, busy, and uh, it finally warmed up a little bit, so that I'm stoked about. So speaking of warm, um, we have a guest on tonight uh, that I've interacted for with, with uh, for years um and it's been around the uh been around the dog world for a long time on more than one continent and the reason i make the warm con is because he makes the hottest fucking hot sauce in the world and you wouldn't think the dude from northern europe would be able to make hot sauce i was like oh shit how hard can this be it's rough um <laughs> and on top of that he's a damn good dog trainer so um and probably has a lot to tell us about how things have changed and where he thinks they're gonna go so um you know with that uh, I want to introduce uh, our guest tonight, which is Rick Walterbeek. Uh, so, Rick, what's going on, man? Uh, I'm good. Yeah. I'm freezing my ass off. It's uh, 30 degrees, but that's what you can expect here in Northwest Illinois. Um, retired, but still working dogs. Uh, I found my next uh, niche, pet dogs. You won't believe how much fun that is helping people. Uh, the little pets behave in a sense that dog is happy, customers are happy, and the trainer is happy also with some real simple work. Doing this stuff already since uh, 44, 45 years. Uh, wow. And the last 35 years prof professionally. Wow. So um, give us a little bit of uh, background because um, I can tell by your accent that you're clearly from Northern Illinois. Um, so <laughs> give us a little background on where you're from, how you got into working dogs 45 years ago. That's longer than I've been alive. Uh, so give us a little background. You know, you're obviously from Northern Europe uh, uh, and we'll go from there. Uh, correct. Um, well, my accent is not Northern uh, Illinois. My accent is from uh, uh, the Netherlands. Of course, uh, but I understand the joke. Uh, uh, <laughs> the, I started in dogs uh, when I got myself a bouvier. Um, Cito Jackie van der Duintop, uh, salt and pepper bouvier. I tried to train him for KMPV. Uh, it didn't work out. 
So I retired the dog, but at that time, uh, I didn't want to get rid of the dog. So I got stuck with him. We didn't have room for any other dog. Um, so I started decoying for the club I was a member of. And that's how it all started. I enjoyed it so much that within two years, um, I got certified as a regional decoy in KMPV. And about a year later, I uh, became certified as a national decoy in KMPV. Um, that was when uh, about 40 years ago. Uh, about four years later, I got an invitation to decoy for a security company uh, because they started working with KMPV titled dogs. That was a requirement in Holland. Um, dogs had to be titled uh, in KMPV if you wanted to work for a security company with a dog. And uh, they also had to pass a test every two years. Um, starting working part-time for the company as a decoy, uh, the guy in charge of the canine unit uh, got uh, promoted and uh, I was asked to take that job and I did it. I was happy to do it. Uh, I stayed there for 11 years till I went to the United States uh, and uh, continued working with dogs uh, here in the States. And that I moved to the States in 1993. And that's it in short. That's uh, the cliff notes for sure. But, um, so... So let's go back all the way back to the beginning with the KNPV. Um, what, uh, what were the dogs like back then? What were you seeing compared to now? Is it pretty, pretty KNPV has been the same all the time. What were you seeing the dogs back then? In those days, uh, you trained, you got force fed, plain, plain and simple, with the methods that were already used since probably since the beginning of KNPV. Uh, and you were told uh, we do it this way and there's no other way. Uh, there were small variations, but there were no such things as balls on the field. There were no such things as food on the field. Everything was done because the dog had to do it. Um, if I look back, uh, the, even the teaching was done by making the dog understand this is your safe spot, uh, do it and otherwise there are consequences. Dogs picked up pretty fast on that. Um, and after that, the method was plain and simple and that was in those days. Um, if you do wrong, you get a correction. If you do right, your first reward will be not getting the correction. Um, of course, nowadays uh, it is not valid anymore. It is not done anymore. Science has improved uh, regarding dog training. And everybody and the mother now has a ball, food, uh, a clicker, you name it. It's all available to make things happen the right way. In the past, because of that, we had pretty tough dogs. I bought dogs with the KPV title that I was scared to death for. <laughs> but I needed dogs like that for the company I worked for uh, because we went to... Uh, uh, do security a lot at uh, soccer games. And as you might know, at soccer games, uh, the hooligans from each club, they were fighting with each other, sometimes up to 200 people that were fighting. And we had to provide security for our own people that were working at soccer games. 
but also for people that we were told to, to uh, uh, take care of. So and as, a, as a result of that, we, we uh, I bought dogs for the company I worked for uh, with an attitude. Uh, and uh, my first contact with people from the United States was uh, at my club where people came to look at dogs, uh, mostly private people that wanted one of those crazy dogs from Holland. Uh, I sold a couple of those to uh, private police officers. Uh, I kept in touch with them. And uh, as a result of that, I was asked to do seminars. Uh, and it was in the late 80s, uh, early 90s uh, in the States. In those days, I didn't have much knowledge about the United States in the sense that I thought the only place where it was nice and warm was Florida. So all other invitations mm -hmm. that I got for seminars, uh, be it even in New Orleans or in Texas, I declined. Uh, I only wanted to go to Florida. So about three <laughs> seminars there. And then I moved to the to the states in '93. So yeah, I used to tell people, but years ago, uh, if you got a cane PV title dog, you were about one hard correction from that dog taking your lunch. Like that dog was coming, he was like, "Yeah, I'm done with this shit." And because of the way they were training back then. So when you talk about everybody and their mother has a ball clicker and food, does that include you? Did you evolve into that type of training too? Of course, you have to evolve, uh, and I did. Uh, I have food uh, with me. I train pet dogs right now, as I told you guys, uh, and I don't need any corrections when I teach a dog something. I try to do everything motivational, but at the same time, I always tell people who, the, who I discuss this uh, training with that um, all the new methods work, but at the same time, my old methods work also. So I work for a friend part-time, and I basically get the problem dogs, uh, although the problems are not really big for me, but at the same time, you need a little bit different attitude to make them understand, hey, buddy, you cannot bite me because I don't want to get hurt. And uh, sometimes uh, uh, you have to correct a dog with a paper towel, so to say, and sometimes you have to hit them with a two by four. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, just, make them, just make them understand do it. And uh, I guarantee you, they understand real quick. They cannot do that stuff anymore. And then it is a matter of conditioning the dog in the sense that they understand uh, it's a big no-no, uh, not even strangers. And uh, that works pretty good. Um, but I have evolved uh, tremendously. Uh, if I just look at uh, the exercise where in Holland, where uh, a dog has to find a box in the woods, uh, everybody... Uh, does it with food now, or uh, there are not so many people that make a dog crazy for the box, but there are still people that do with the old method, and it still works. But the motivational stuff is now taking, not taking over, but it is used way more and a lot in Holland, in KMPV. Uh, and as a result of that, many dogs that wouldn't pass, in my days, a KMPV certification uh, would... Uh, pet certification this year because they know how to build a dog up. Uh, if we had a, a dog that couldn't handle the stress that we put on just to make them lay down, then basically we said, well, we go find another one. And that's not the case anymore. So having been around it for a long time, you are um, 
and Netherlands is not a huge country and the program is as big as it is, you probably have a pretty good understanding or, or knowledge of most famous dogs. And I bring up famous dogs because I'm going to kick it over to Ted because I know anytime he's talking to someone that's been around doing KMPV in the Netherlands for a long time, he has a specific dog he likes to talk about. And I know you want to bring it up today, Ted, so go for it. So everybody knows. And we had this, like, I think on episode three, I think that's what it was, with Mike Suttle. And I called it unicorn hunting. Um, But you were around back then. So were you ever in contact or do you, what was the consensus on uh, Duco 2 when he was alive? BRN 60, for those that are listening. (laughs) Well, I don't, I never really looked at things that way. Plain and simple, because in those days there was nothing uh, available to see farther than where you went. So uh, it was all talk. Uh, you have to keep in mind, in the in the late 70s, early 80s, we went to a club and you saw a dog hit like 100 miles an hour, or I went uh, to uh, uh, do a certification trial in another province. Then I said, wow, that's a good dog. But I didn't know anything about it. I was never interested in breeding. Uh, I just relied on the knowledge of people that were available to help you out finding a good dog. So all the names that one would uh, mention, uh, let's say in this interview, uh, I know of them, but I I never met them. But at the same time, uh, they have proven themselves to be good dogs. Um, So in uh, nowadays, if you have if you have a quiet, if you have a dog that is good, um, then uh, it is uh, fairly, fairly easy to promote that dog uh, on uh, social media. Uh, in those days, we didn't have anything else than uh, one puppy, two puppies, three puppies, and people say, wow, that's a good dog he produces, so let's breed him to another female. Um, uh, and that is uh, the advantage nowadays of uh, social uh, uh, communications, uh, when people uh, all over the world know, hey, uh, that dog has produced good. Uh, I, when I went to the States, um, everybody asked me about bloodlines. They knew, they knew about parents and grandparents way better than me. And I always had to tell people, I don't know shit about that stuff. The only thing that I'm interested in is in the dog in front of me, in the pup in front of me and see if they fit my standards. And that's how I also bought dogs. Uh, when, I, when I had my business in, in Florida, I bought dogs in, uh, from Holland. Uh, they have to fit my standard. Uh, I wouldn't buy a dog that I wouldn't work for the security company uh, that I worked for. So uh, that was my standard. And uh, But at the same time, uh, uh, there were many dogs that were good, but at the same time, not good enough for me. Um, but... Every dog that came from Holland had to be good. And that's not true. That is a, a fairy tale. Yeah, that's a, uh, you know, and, and we talked about that a lot. Like uh, we had a dog come over from Holland that was a really nice dog. He's a fantastic patrol dog. Uh, we bred him and the puppies were terrible. And he's a fantastic patrol dog and he's from, and he just was not a producer, but um, it seems like <laughs> there was another interview from somebody several years ago. And I guess Tuco two supposedly was bred 130 something times to 40 females and had 1100 offspring. And you know, that dog has been dead since Clinton was in office. And now even today it's 2020, almost 2021. And people still talk about having Duco two 
within their lines or having uh, Django, which was a direct dog off him in their bloodline. So it's always interesting. I always like to ask guys that had time or that were had access to him, uh, what that was like um, and around that time, because you basically summed it up. Like when you were there, it was kind of like, you know, nobody knew who the hell he was. It didn't really matter. And it wasn't until kind of after the fact that he was got um, a reputation as whatever he is now. Um, not to say that he obviously doesn't deserve that, but it's an interest. It's interesting to hear um, that from that perspective. So yeah, I, I it's, it's super interesting to hear that for sure. I'm the same way with you, Rick. I, um, I don't know much about the bloodlines. I, I go on a dog by dog basis. Uh, if they have a BRN crate, I'll look it up. And I may even have somebody look at it. But you know who also does not care about bloodlines? Police departments. True. Don't care. They, they don't care where the dog's bloodlines are. There are a couple guys that I've ever met that I've we've sold dogs to at police departments that kind of knew a little bit. And they're asking me questions. I'm like, yeah, dude, I don't know. It could be written in Spanish. I don't know. <laughs> I know this dog right here, and he's awesome. Brother sucked. He's great, you know, who, whatever. It, it's in, on an individual basis, you know. So one of the things that's, that's fascinating to me about um, uh, Europe, and, and Ted and I talk about this a lot, is how deeply ingrained the dog sports stuff is in, say, like KMPV in, uh, in the Netherlands, um, Ted, you, we talked about, it. you don't think the guys over here really understand it, do you? Uh, no. Well, and that's the thing. Like, you know, we talk about, um, wanting to have a breeding program in the United States. And I think the thing that people don't get about the United States is that it's really, really big, right? When we have dudes come over from Europe, they're like, Oh, I was in Vegas one year and we had a guy who's like, can you drive me to LA? I'm like, bro, it's fucking four hours the wrong way and, and on a good day. And he was like, oh, but it's only like this far on the map. I'm like, no, I mean, I get it, but it's not. And, you know, like the Netherlands is really small. So the United States, we don't have a like a culture of raising police dogs and whatever else. And, you know, in, in Holland, KMPV, Rick, I want you to talk a little bit about like how ingrained in that culture it is. Like it's a cultural thing for that part of that a part of that country and i mean it has been for a very very long time and uh, and it's the same with other dog sports if you really want to go into it it's a way of living when i was in holland doing KMPV, i was for uh, quite some time um uh training director of my club you came four times a week tuesday evening thursday evening saturday afternoon sunday morning the only reason that you couldn't come at many clubs, including mine, was if you had to work. If you stayed away without notification, the whole club was pissed like hell because the KMPV program relies on everybody to work. You don't have one dog on the field for, I don't know if you have seen that, uh, if you've been in Holland, uh, you don't work one dog on the field for 25 minutes and then another dog comes on the field, you work uh, many dogs on the field, uh, up to three or four. But you need help. So one person is standing where the small article search uh, is done. One person is standing where the jumps are done. One person is going to where 
the swimming, the swimming is done, uh, and it is all practicing, and one person is doing where the healing is done, and then when one person is done with all the jumping, then he brings the box in the woods, and everybody is rubbing and taking turns and helping each other. So if one person or two people don't show up, then the whole system that you have uh, created uh, through experience uh, is messed up. So uh, you just made rules. Hey, you have to come. If you cannot come, you have to let us know. And if you didn't come too often, then you basically uh, got the boot because uh, they said, well, we cannot rely on you. So we, we, don't, we don't want you to come. It's better to work with four people that are determined than with eight people who you have to wonder, is he coming tomorrow? Uh, oh, it's raining. He's probably not showing up today. Um, you cannot do that. So it is a way of living, but it is for other sports also, even in the States. Another thing that you have to keep in mind, um, we have a history, KMBV, Schutzhund, in those days, uh, since 1909, 1907. Um, here in the States, uh, the big thing that makes things difficult is the distance. Holland from east to west is about two and a half hours from north to south, except for the very uh, southern part of Holland is uh, about three and a half hours. Uh, tomorrow I go to uh, do uh, some training because our young dog needs that. And we drive six hours just to train one day. Uh, there are very few people who don't want to do that, cannot do that, uh, just have a problem doing that and to put themselves. So uh, you have itty bitty clusters of training and that is for all sports where people are really enthusiastic, but there are areas in the States uh, where there's no sport at all. And somebody finds on the internet that I like this sport and they start inquiring and there's nothing around unless you drive two or three hours. And that is just not happening in Holland. Uh, uh, we have close access to a club. My club was only 10 minutes away. Uh, jump on my bike, dog next to me, all my stuff is at the club, and I go train my dog and go back on the bike with a dog next to me. Um, and that's what many people did in the past. On a bike. Wow. <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Uh, we are uh, going to take a break real quick. Uh, we come back. We're going to talk about some stuff that's been going on in the United States. And we're going to talk about the hot sauce pro show. So uh, don't fast forward to the commercials. Uh, we'll be back. Hang out. All right, guys. One of our best sponsors, one of our oldest sponsors, are the Perkinsons down in Harmony, North Carolina at Highland Canine. We have a ton of people going down there for their handler schools their trainer schools, their full-on um, dog training schools where you learn police dogs, pet dogs, all aspects of it. They have amazing dogs for sale, classes for police, classes for police supervisors, pretty much a full gamut of anything you need in the dog world. Highland Canine definitely is the place to go check it out. Uh, there, I, I can't tell you enough about how great these people are. Everybody I know that's been there for their training say it is no joke. Um, check them out. Tacticalpolicek9training.com. Get your butt down there in North Carolina, man, and learn. Speaking of full service, it's no secret that we love the guys up in Colorado Springs at Ray Allen Canine Equipment. We use their products every single day. Their mission statement says it all. To be a world leader in the quality and innovation of professional canine equipment for police, 
Military Schutzen Ring Sport to exceed our customers' expectations to deliver on time every time at a fair price. We full-heartedly believe that they have that they are true to that statement since it's our go-to one-stop shop for everything canine. They literally have everything there except the damn dog. You can get in the car, but they have inserts, they have hot poppers, they have e-collars, they have leashes, they have regular collars, harnesses, they have muzzles, they have some of the working dog draggers muzzles that end up starting their life in my living room. So be sure to check them out, rayallen.com, and use the discount code WORKINGDOGRADIO written all the way out for 10% off. We really are so lucky and happy to be partners with uh, the guys down at Kinetic Dog Food. Um, the stuff that those guys are doing, man, it, it's so good. The ingredients that they have, we had them on a podcast. Uh, it was eye-opening. Listen to them talk about uh, the goofy stuff that goes into dog foods and in, in, in the business. They are honest. They are great people. Kinetic dog food. Um, they will drop ship you a pallet if that's your thing. If you got that many dogs, they'll drop ship you a pallet anywhere you need it kineticdogfood.com best in in the industry and uh, definitely a personal favorite of working dog radio kineticdogfood.com yeah and if you're out on the east side of the country uh be sure to hit up southern coast canine they're a reputable canine kennel that does dog sales and training services located in sunny new smyrna florida southern coast canine provides services worldwide from purchasing your next single or dual purpose working dog to handler courses and seminars Southern Coast is a great resource to check them out. You know, the Heisers run a great ship down there, and obviously the weather's nice. So if you live in a part of the country where it sucks half the time, the year weather-wise, that's where you go in the wintertime. That's how you get your admins, send them down, get, you them, get them to send you down there in, in the wintertime when it's nice and sunny. Uh, they do a fantastic job with trainers courses, decoy schools, uh, and handler courses for green dogs and finished dogs and retreads too. So be sure to hit them up at Southern Coast Canine. That's letter K number nine dot com and get scheduled or go find you a dog. Dogtra. Uh, we post on our social media all the time, Ted and I using Dogtra. Uh, I, I love everything about them. Uh, I think the Dogtra 1900S is the gold standard for police canine. Um, it is a perfect collar. The remote size is perfect. Um, you got that you can do the um, hands-free device if you want. Uh, their ball popper, their Dogtra YS 600 bark collar. I've got a drawer full of those at the kennel. Um, I want my place nice and quiet. The uh, bark collars solve a lot of the thrashing in cars. If you got that dog that spins up at training in the back of the car, get yourself a Dogtra YS 600 collar. One of our biggest sponsors, one of our biggest friends, big supporters of the podcast, dogtra.com. Uh, they do have a discount code too for us is WDR10 for 10% off a single item over $200. Don't mess around. Don't wait. Dogtra.com. Um, after two years, uh, I decided to try to become uh, certified as a regional helper. Regional, regional is every province in Holland is a region of KMPV. So uh, when you do a regional, uh, you have to do all the KMPV exercises where a decoy is involved with four dogs. Uh, those dogs are all KMPV titled, and you try to, to get easy dogs. Easy dogs in a way that you know the dogs, uh, that you don't have to expect anything bad to happen, uh, uh, where it is fairly easy to pass the test. The test is taken by 
three judges and uh, from your region and uh, they throw you basically in the deep water and you just can swim a little bit and you try to get to the to the to be successful to get out of the water uh, once you pass that test officially you have to wait at least one year I think in those days um, to be able to apply to become the uh, national decoy uh, national decoy is top grade of the decoys in Holland uh, in order to pass that uh, you again have to work uh, four dogs but this time the judges are from another region and they will um, put you to the ringer completely including theoretical stuff but they put you to the ringer. Um, you must be a really bad decoy if you don't pass for national decoy because your club members and your club have to ask and promote you and your region to become a, a national decoy. You cannot do that by yourself. Um, so once you pass, then the real shit happens because all of a sudden you are sent to another region and you get eight dogs in front of you that you have never seen before. And in those days, you didn't know if the dog was coming uh, on your bicep or just below your knee uh, uh, on the stick attack going about 30 miles an hour. Uh, so that was quite an experience in the beginning. Uh, uh, but I made it throughout of it. And I did that decoying in Holland for 17 years. Uh, uh, Nowadays, it is still the same. It is fairly difficult to become uh, certified as a decoy, but with the help from your club members and uh, your uh, region, uh, it is all doable, but it takes, it takes a lot of work to make it happen the right way. So we had a, a guy come from uh, Holland, and he came over, and I think it was, I want to say 2015, he came and put a decoy school on for us. And uh, we were talking and, you know, he's been around for a while and was a national decoy and stuff. And he said, and I don't know if you're hearing this from back home, that the problem now is getting the young guys that want to take the punishment uh, and go through it and actually do it, that they're struggling to find, you know, guys that still wanted to get into it. Do you, are you hearing that or are they kind of turning that around? Absolutely right. Uh, but that is in any sport. Um, um, if I would uh, translate it uh, literally from Dutch, uh, nowadays there are more sissies uh, uh, on the field working with a dog than in the past. And uh, if they get hurt a little bit, uh, they might start crying or they piss at the pants. So only the good ones. Uh, so it, it, it gets harder and harder to find guys to do the work. Everybody can do the work and a mother can do the work uh, on the field at your club. There's no big deal. But the moment you have to step up and go to another region or go to a regional or a national trial, then uh, the real work uh, starts to come because not only have, do you have to do your work correctly, but you have to make sure that you do everything the right way. And uh, that's difficult. It takes a lot of work before you are actually invited for the nationals. I, I had the honor, and it is really an honor, to be uh, invited for three times for national uh, uh, events. <coughs> And uh, it is plain and simple, uh, times has changed. So uh, our decoys are more and more uh, in demand uh, and it becomes more and more difficult to uh, uh, find things the right way uh, and uh, find guys that want to do it all the way. 
Yeah, we run into that. Everybody wants to be a decoy until they get in the suit. And then they're like, oh, man, this hurts. I'm like, yeah, dog bites hurt. Uh, they're supposed to. That's kind of a thing. Why we do it. So <laughs> um, so talk about like coming to the United States. Um, and when you got here, um, talk about the difference between like what was going on in Holland versus what was happening in the United States. Uh, and then we'll move forward from that point. Right. You won't believe it, what I'm saying now, but it is true. Uh, I got imported by the smartest woman in dog sports in 1993 in Holland, uh, my ex. Um, in those days, it was fancy for people who did sports to have somebody from Germany, mostly from Germany, come over for a month, for two months, and... Uh, show people from the States the ropes of shoot-shoots. Um, I met my ex at a seminar in Florida, and one thing led to the other, and she invited in the past already. She was already breeding a melanoma in those days, in 93, um, and she invited me to come, uh, come over, and one thing led to another, and I moved to the States in 93. Um, right from the get-go, I got busy uh, training with people and doing seminars, uh, invited by law enforcement guys. And I was the crazy guy. Uh, when a dog came from Holland, uh, I took good bites from, uh, without presenting my arm. And they were flipping out uh, that somebody could do that. I, I think in those days, I was the only one that did that shit. But I always made first sure that the dog was actually from Holland and trained in KPV. Because you, as you guys know, Many dogs that come from Holland are trained in Eastern Europe and they haven't yet seen one training field in Holland at all. Uh, but in those days, uh, I just checked if the dog was uh, 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 actually from Holland, trained in KMPV, uh, just a couple of things, and then uh, I said, okay, send the freaking dog. So I impressed mm -hmm. people quite a bit, and as a result, uh, I, was, I became the new kid on the block. And the grass is always greener uh, when it is new. So I got real busy doing seminars all over the United States, uh, Central America, uh, uh, just about decoying uh, for law enforcement mostly. That's still a, uh, in fact, our company HRD does one, like we're getting ready to do one in January, first week of January. In fact, when this come, when this publishes, this is, by the way, Happy New Year, everybody. This episode goes up on January 3rd. Uh, right when this is happening, I think there's a decoy camp in Valdosta, Georgia for HRD, but it's all for uh, police officers. So yeah, it's still a thing like, and it's an extremely important part of it. And I remember back when I started, it was like, nobody was, I mean, there wasn't a ton of quality decoy work being done. And this is not even that long ago, like, you know, 10 plus like a little over 10 years. So it's not like 40, so mm. <laughs> or 45. Um, but, um, yeah. And, in, in it's interesting to hear that even back then that was a problem and it still hasn't caught on. There's like, there's guys across the country that say, Oh yeah, you know, we got to have great decoys and it's the most important factor in maintaining a patrol dog. But they're just the one thing that I tell people all the time. And I was like, really the only way to get good at decoying is just decoy. Like, it's just like shooting. Like you have to get taught correctly and you have to just get smashed by dogs over and over and over and over again. And, you know, you made a good point. Um, and I tell people that all the time when we teach decoy camps, uh, I like, you said easy dogs or dogs that are predictable so that you can learn how to do it correctly and you don't have to problem solve when you start out. And that's one thing we, we focus on when we start teaching decoys. 
Um, in fact, I shared a video today of my intern, Josh, uh, the first time he was in a bite suit and he was with my, my dog, Leck, who was very, I guess, easy in terms of he targets well, he outs correctly, he, he's, he grips correctly, does everything kind of automatically because, you know, we taught him correctly, but it's easier to teach a decoy that shit when the dog does it correctly versus having to, you know, throw an inexperienced dog with them and then having them solve problems, which is extremely important. So when you were doing um, all of those seminars, did you see a lot of the same problems that we see today? Like, which is dogs that don't target well, dogs that don't have good grips, all that kind of stuff. Right. The, the, the thing in those days mainly was um, the, the seminars were five days. Uh, both of the time. Friday was certification because they always made a combination with it. And in those days, there were four or five groups in the United States of instructors. Um, I was a member of, so to say, of two groups. Uh, and many times the problems were pretty much the same. Um, because they didn't have good obedience and authority on the dog, the dog was basically on vacation when it came to bite work yelling and screaming and all that shit uh, and never had good results. And then this little guy, 168 pounds, uh, put on the suit and show you what the dog can do and but also show you uh, what needs to be done in order to make the dog operate correctly. And I always told people, I can only do one miracle a week. Hmm. And meaning uh, make every dog out. Uh, I cannot make every freaking dog out on certification day. Uh, I focused always on the most difficult one, and it was quite successful because I always choose a dog, chose a dog that was from Holland. And if a dog is either KPV titled or pretty far in his training, the methods were pretty much similar. Like I said before, if you don't out, if you don't. Uh, do right, you get a correction. If you do wrong, you don't get a correction. So I started beating dogs up uh, in those days. Uh, if they didn't out, yelling and cursing at them in Dutch, and those dogs kind of said to themselves, holy fuck, I'm back in Holland. I better behave. Two days, and handlers, those, handlers, those handlers only had to tell the dog uh, out or loss in Dutch, of course, and the dog dropped down on his ass. Uh, what happened after that week, nobody knows, but at least they were able to pass certification. Uh, what you guys do now, and I, I've said that many times to friends in Holland, what you guys do now uh, uh, with those uh, decoy uh, things and that high-risk deployment things um, is uh, something that we did in those days in the evening hours. In the daytime, it was always scheduled, obedience, tracking, and uh, bite work, uh, anything special, and they call it in those days special. I never called it special because I didn't train that way, was done in the evening hours. So they set up scenarios that they came upon, and I was trying to help them out to make things happen the right way. Um, for instance, go into a dark room, completely passive, uh, cardboard boxes uh, all around you and see if the dog wants to commit just for the bite because you send them in to bite. Um, uh, and all those things uh, happened only in the evening hours because uh, there was no time to do that in the daytime. You guys have made it 
the thing, and it, I think it's very good to do it uh, and focus on things like that, where people are actually fighting with the cop decoys, and the cop is either on top or under the decoy, and she at the dog wants to engage and wants to engage the right guy, that's for sure. So all that crazy shit that you guys do uh, in the daytime, we did it in the evening hours for fun, and most of the time, only, let's say, if we had 40 people, only maybe 20 showed up, but the other ones were just drinking and having fun. Uh, they thought it was not important enough uh, to do it. Yeah, we just call it doing hood rat shit in the dark. And uh, <laughs> I tell people all the time, like, we didn't invent any of this. And most of these scenarios that Eric and I run and Ray um, are either from stuff that have happened to our guys or failures or successes that we've seen. And uh, yeah, I'm like, we didn't invent any of this. And I tell people that all the the time i mean you guys like it sounds like you, you guys are doing it 40 years ago but you're doing it in the dark we do it in the dark we try to make it dark we have to do it during the day but because uh, that's when everybody wants to train but yeah it's it's interesting that uh it's interesting that you guys were doing it back then and it makes me super happy that that is it makes me super happy that i at we did not come up with anything new like i didn't do anything special <laughs> we just yeah. have our own flavor so yeah eric what do you got so I got two questions for you. Um, one, so if anybody goes and watches YouTube videos on KMPV, it's almost always just stick attack. That's what everybody sees. They love to see that dog come in there. But um, tell, tell me, how's that scored? I'm always curious how that scored. And my second question is uh, a lot of the, you know, we got a lot of friends that are involved in Mondo Ring and French Ring and the, the grip is not judged. Um, and I think, though, it's a big part of the KMPV, or I might be wrong. Talk about the grip and, and how it's judged and how important you guys view it. Um, you are right. Everybody is talking about the stick attack. Uh, it is the most difficult part of KMPV program, in my opinion. Uh, I can teach uh, a monkey to do all the exercises uh, as a handler, uh, or a decoy but I cannot teach him to do the stick attack because stick attack takes timing. The rule book states uh, um, the dog has to, the decoy has to hit the dog with a stick before he bites, that split second before he bites. Now, if you know the dog and you have done him a uh, hundred times, then you will hit him every single time the right way. There are very few people that will allow you to do that because after a while you get so handy with it that the dog starts hitting the brake. Every dog has his breaking point. Um, I always look at things this way um, before I start talking about the points. Um, if you go to a club in the past, and uh, we are doing APA now in all, uh, here in the States, that is KMPV uh, program here in the States. Uh, if you ask a handler, can I hit your dog? Uh, and the handler says, yeah. That might mean only that. That means only one thing. He doesn't think you will impress the, his dog at all. The moment people say, "No, just don't hit him. Just keep the stick up in the air," then you're probably doing a pretty damn good job uh, uh, hitting the dog with the stick. The rule book says, preferably from the shoulders towards the tail. 90% of the time, and nowadays you can see that real good in slow motion. It is crossed over the back, but you have to hit the dog because everybody looks at that. Now, as far as the points, uh, it is a big exercise. There's a lot of points. Um, seven times five, 35 points. 
and it starts already at the beginning. At the start, you have to control your door. Afwachten op volgen van command, or waiting for the command to be given to you to go after the decoy. When the dog is in pursuit, he has to go full force. The decoy goes out of um, out of sight, uh, so the decoy, the dog has to keep going, um, and that is just training. Um, when the dog hits the guy, he has to commit and bite uh, and not let go. Um, the way of stopping, yelling at the dog, hitting the dog, uh, all those things are part of the exercise. Seven times five, 35 points, a very crucial thing. The one thing that is different with any other sport in the world, I dare to say, is that in Holland you have technical judging. So if a dog misses the initial bite in the stick attack, the judge is allowed to ignore it if he thinks that it is because of his speed that the dog was not able to have a good grip and he can keep the dog at fives. It hardly happens. Uh, he will get one, he can get one point deduction of the dog, so that is one time uh, for the way of stopping is a four. If the judge sees that the dog is a little bit reluctant, his ears are up. He hits the brakes just a little bit before he, we, we call that the nice word, gathering himself, but he's just saying, oh shit, I have to do this, mm-hmm. I have to do this again. Uh, then instead of one point, the rule book says the judge can take as many as seven points away from the dog. Seven points meaning from each of the seven exercises will get one point deduction. So it's, instead of seven times four, you get seven uh, seven times five, you get seven times four points. Uh, I'm not a KBV judge, so there might be a little variables here that uh, are, are different. Um, if the dog is really bad and he's just hanging on, but he still made it and he was hanging on, uh, uh, and again, according to the two judges that are on the field, the judge can give the dog seven times three points. Let's say the dog hits the decoy, he falls off, he's impressed by the uh, threat with the stick up again, so he gets, instead of that, seven times five or seven times four, he gets seven times three points, 21 points. That is the minimum that you need to have in order to continue with the exercise. So if one thing is a little bit less, then the judge will call you, let's say uh, one one thing is about, uh, instead of a three, it became a four, then the judge will say, okay, come over here, say you're done for the day. Uh, good luck next time when you try with your dog. Um, most of the times, nowadays, the handler uh, many times decides to just get rid of the dog. Uh, it's still a very good dog. Guess where the dog goes to? <laughs> the United States? Right. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. or to Vietnam, to Korea, to wherever. Um, So that is about the points. Uh, And uh, so every single one thing counts, and that is because of the technical judging um, that makes it so complicated to score all the points for each exercise, uh, because that goes throughout the whole program. So 
one thing that's unique about um, KMPV is their uh, is the suit. Now, in the United States, um, in French and Mondial Ring, um, PSA, all the suit sports, um, with the exception of KMPV, um, well, and MDBK to that extent, they have their own um, special suit too that's only got accepted targets on the form and the shins. But um, the the suit for KMPV is much, much, much different than the French suits um, that like we wear in PSA or we wear for Mondial Ring or French Ring. Talk about what those things are because they're one, they're heavy as shit and they're multi-layer and all kinds of stuff. And talk about why they are like, why are they that way? Like how that happened, how it turned, like you guys are literally right next to France. And for whatever reason, you guys have a completely different suit, completely different kind of setup for dogs, like everything else. This is one of those questions that the people in Holland never ask. <laughs> and you know why? <laughs> because you don't know, you don't know, you don't know any better. Um, it is a tradition. The suit was there. I can tell you this: in the mid '80s, people in Holland started to buy pants from Belgium, from Belgium suit, similar to the to the French suit, but uh, a lot heavier. And I was lucky to have in those days a big vehicle. So I started to go also to Belgium with a bunch of friends and we bought a bunch of Belgium suits. Why? It was easier to put on and easier to put off. So, so if you would ask why are you using those suits in Holland, I cannot say give you a straight answer. The only thing that I can say is it is tradition. It hasn't changed a bit. Uh, uh, it is nothing fancier. It is just because it is KPV. Uh, as I said, uh, people here in the States ask me many times questions that I say, well, I, I cannot answer you that because I was force fed when I was, became a member of a club. Then we do and, and those ask, don't ask stupid questions. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's not that it is, not that it is a stupid question, but that's how, how the attitude was in those days. And uh, so we, I cannot give you a definite answer. I prefer the uh, Belgium suit. Uh, uh, you just have to run a little bit faster and train a little bit harder to run as good as uh, French decor. Um, but I can tell you that uh, uh, I was used to my uh, KMPV suit uh, and it fitted me like a glove. So I was wearing it all the time, uh, seven days a week. I did decor work uh, uh, four times at my club uh, and five days a week at uh, the company I worked for for a long time. So you basically uh, grow into it after a while, and, and I'm pretty sure you have the same feeling. You don't feel it anymore. You just it's just part of your work, uh, so to say. But uh, it is easier to put on and off. Uh, that's for sure. So. Yeah, and they're super heavy. I've worn them a couple times. I much prefer the French ring suit or the French suits just for mobility, and they are lighter. And uh, but I will say that the KMPV suits are easier to work dogs that bite super fucking hard on, <laughs> and uh, they are a little more protective, but not a ton. But I, I do, I do like them for uh, for some of that stuff in terms of you know working some dogs they do promote hard hard bites um and the dogs do have to bite hard to maintain and to stay there so um since you've been around since 93 in the united states um what do what has changed on the police side um you know i know that a lot of things have changed um in training in general 
Uh, I tell people all the time that, you know, the United States has some really, really, really talented police trainers, probably some of the best in the world. Um, and I think a product of that is because of the laws in the United States and how we, how we police and how we um, use dogs here. Uh, but talk a little bit about the evolution of it and where you see um, the future of canine going once we get out of fucking 2020, which we are when this episode uploads. We're going to a new year and hopefully no more COVID. So... <laughs> When I started in, uh, in, in 93 here in the States uh, doing seminars, there was a big difference uh, already uh, visible uh, real quick for me uh, in um, the training method, in the training, but uh, mainly in the attitude from the head towards, you know, quiet. My wife is coming home, so all my dogs are getting excited. Um, <laughs> because in, in, uh, in Holland, uh, uh, there was in those days way less responsibility put on the handler regarding bites that were accidental. Uh, it was just swept, swept under the rug and talking to a captain or something like that. And then it was, we pay for your pants and that was it. Um, uh, in the States, already in those days, there was uh, talking about liability and uh, you cannot do that and you have to be careful. Uh, and it has become even quiet. It became even worse. Uh, and in Holland, they kind of were, have been catching up with the United States in the sense that uh, in Holland, uh, they have to be really careful now when they want to put a dog in for a bite uh, because things have changed, times has changed, but also the rules and regulations have changed uh, all over the world, probably. The one thing I never could understand is that and later, uh, of course, later I understood that, that they want the dogs to be multi-purpose in the sense that they have to do drugs, they have to do explosive, uh, and on top of that, they also have to do uh, protection work, um, bite work. Um, and many times they also wanted to, to be social, and I never understood that. In Holland, we had a city uh, like Amsterdam who had 40 or 60 dogs. Uh, none of those dogs were used for demos. Uh, in the sense that they went to school. That, of course, they did demos, but that was with police officers putting in a suit. Uh, nothing to promote a sheriff, a chief, a mayor, or something like that. That was not the case. I was amazed when I saw that for the first couple of times. And I said, well, that's why you, want, uh, you guys want dogs that are at least manageable when they are around people. We didn't give a shit about that stuff. Hmm. Uh, just stay away from me. I see my dog at the end of the lead. You just stay away from me, otherwise you, will, you get bit. Um, and that has changed in Holland also uh, quite a bit. So uh, I, I'm not really surprised uh, that it uh, uh, has changed over, over uh, there. Um, but it was already going on here in the States that uh, the attitude towards it was a lot different than here. Plus, the United States is so big that when I trained a dog for somebody in Florida, I lived in Florida for 12 years, uh, it was completely different than when I trained somebody for the state of New York. Uh, and I was amazed about that. There was there was not, and still is not, uh, a federal program where, where everybody has to pass the same uh, standards. And one of the things that is happening because of that is that there are agencies, especially smaller ones, that don't even do a test still on, to these days or buy a dog from somebody and that somebody is crooked enough, so to say, 
to certify the dog while he doesn't have any authority to get that dog certified. Um, and uh, that is still happening in the States. It doesn't happen in Holland because Holland is small, so they, it's easier to control the stuff. But um, that's how I think about the difference. Uh, the bite work is pretty much the same idea to control. Uh, in Holland, they train better because most of the instructors are also KMPV people. Here, here's the guy who knows a little bit more, uh, becomes the instructor many times because of uh, uh, being the lowest in the canine unit. And uh, hmm. that, that luckily that is changing a little by little. So one of the things I, I got one more question, and then uh, Ted's going to talk about your apparently molten lava hot sauce. But um, so my question is um, one of the saddest things that I've seen over the years is how, and I blame the Americans, how we have, in my opinion, destroyed the German shepherd breed over here. Um, I still get good German shepherd dogs for police work, but they're always from Europe. Um, I shouldn't say always 99% of them are from Europe. There's a, there are still some, a few decent breeders, but I think there's so much um, cancer and structural problems and spinal issues and bones floating around in this freaking country in, um, in German shepherds. My fear is that we will, also destroy the Belgian Malinois. Have you seen anything headed that direction at all? Yes. Um, it will eventually happen to the Malinois also. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that you have seen uh, many times on uh, Facebook that uh, uh, the one thing people do nowadays, that they, 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 there are two opposites. There are people that breed a good dog to a good dog, and then they tell everybody, and the pups are just two days old, that they will have full mouth bite, they will have extreme high prey and food drive and all that shit, and they're only two days old. And they're not saying the expect, no, these dogs will And another really nice selling point is these dogs can only go to experienced handlers. And that's fucking bullshit. If you want a dog, you buy a dog, all that crap here. The reason why dogs will eventually get messed up, and it happened to the German Shepherd, is plain and simple money. Uh, if somebody is willing to breed a shitty dog to a good dog and hope that good dogs come out and a good dog is the male and the shitty dog is the female uh, and they're trying to sell them and one of them is good, then they do another breeding because maybe next time two of them are good. Um, the popularity of the German Shepherd has, I kind of hurried that uh, quite a bit. Uh, the Malinois is still considered a crazy dog, uh, so not for first-time owners, but everybody one day was a first-time owner, you know what I mean? So uh, those are things that, 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 that I cannot get a grip on that people say that um, it's already happening with the Malinois. Uh, nowadays, through DNA testing, they can recognize uh, faults in dogs, so people have the right attitude towards breeding. Uh, will not breed or eat the breeding, but at the same time, other people will ignore it. They say, well, uh, it, it, the chances are very little that it comes up. So I just do a breeding. Um, everybody expects to have the good breeding, but I know a guy who uh, uh, is very, very well respected in the detection world who told me, Rick, we spent $20 million on, uh, on the breeding program, but it still was an educated crapshoot. And that's what people have to keep in mind. You cannot, if it was a science, then we wouldn't have bad dogs in the world anymore. 
it comes close to being a science, but there's still so much gaps in in breeding, in training, in raising a dog environment. Still, that people start saying, uh, uh, you cannot say my dog is the best dog in the world and it will be uh, uh, producing only good dogs. Uh, as, you, as you quoted earlier, this dog was bred 130 times. Well, that is Murphy law. Eventually, he will end, end up with a couple of good dogs. But was that the, was that coming from the and nothing bad about those dogs that you mentioned. But at the same time, that's how you have to look at things. Uh, if he's bred 130 times and he had 1100 pups, uh, you have to look at the thing: how many were were actually titled or work, uh, working in police work. Um, and then nowadays there are statistics about that. But in the past, uh, uh, nobody really cared about it. Like like, like you said before. I just look not farther than what I see, and that's it. Excellent. Yeah, and you know, and I, I kind of echo what Eric said. And there is, you know, a, a sore lack. And even with you know Malinois and some Dutchies, and with uh, German Shepherds, there's you know, I've been burned a couple of times um, from vendors sending me dogs that have fucked up like spines and I mean just crazy shit and stuff that should have been avoidable both in the United States and from Europe um but you know when I get a dog in now like he's here for two days and I take his ass straight to the vet and make sure he's got 42 teeth two nuts both eyes all feet like he's got doesn't have heartworm like I've seen I've had dogs shipped to me from northern Europe where there is no heartworm that got here and took I take them straight to the vet and two days after they got here, they were heartworm positive. And I'm like, how does that happen? Cause it takes six months to test positive. And the dog's been here two days and he came from a place without heartworm. And they're like, Oh, I don't know. I'm like, well, well I, mean, I, don't, I mean, he, I don't know what you want me to tell you, but he's got it. So it's, it's a, uh, it's not, you know, I don't think it's necessarily endemic to the United States, but for sure you're right. It is money. So completely off topic of dogs. Um, <laughs> Several years ago, you posted on Facebook about like having hot sauce, and I'm like, "Fuck, how hot can this shit be?" Because I like hot stuff, right? So I'm like, oh, "How hot can this dude? This dude's from fucking Netherlands, like you know, they may they they have fucking you know dogs, and they bite, they race bikes, they speed skate, and they have badass chocolate and waffles and shit." And I'm like, "How how hot can this be?" Right? You know, we have Mexico, just the south. You know, it's the invention. It was one of the places you know where they have hot sauce invented, and you sent me this shit at. I almost died um, the first time I ate it. <laughs> it was so fucking hot. What is in that, and why is it so hot? And you ex- tried to explain it to me about like it has something to do with like what the Dutch colonized or something. I don't know, but explain to me what's in that shit and why it's so hot. Because I have to cut it with regular hot sauce, and then I can make it. Eat. I can. It's edible, and it tastes really, really good. It's the most important part. But everybody can make hot sauce. But nobody can make hot sauce that tastes good. It is always sour. They always use vinegar to preserve it. And I don't use any vinegar at all. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what to put in there because then everybody starts to make it. And I've already had, had, had offers from people that say, oh, Rick, let's go and make that shit uh, in, in Bulk. I said, no, quiet. Let's make that shit in, uh, in Bulk. I said, no, no, I'll keep it with me. Um, Give the recipe to my wife, so that is her, her inheritance. Uh, let me tell you this, just a little story. This summer, I did a seminar in uh, in uh, South Carolina, and uh, with a uh, friend of mine. He's a uh, training APA, uh, 
His name is Anthony Rosan. He is Italian and he wants to know that. So he cooked for three days Italian. So when it was lunchtime the first day, there was a table with about 20 different kinds of things. And they asked me, Rick, can you bring some water sauce? I said, yeah, sure. So everybody went in that little building and I yelled at everybody, okay, people, this is hot sauce. You can eat as much as you want, but it is extremely hot. Be careful. So everybody took a little bit probably if they wanted to. Then this one lady who was not inside filled up a plate and she thought, well, that's nice. They have the marinara sauce separate. Oh no. So she put it on a food bite and she was sick for the rest of the day. Uh, and <laughs> it didn't. I asked, I asked my friend, uh, did she ever show back up at the club? And she said, no, but that was a joke because they are, uh, she was, uh, she's extremely busy with her work. So they couldn't come uh, for a while. But uh, that's uh, how hot it is. And I like to make it hot. I eat it every day. Um, except in the morning with my food, but for the rest, I, I eat it all the time. Uh, I'm not going to tell you the secret. I use extreme hot peppers, whatever I can get my hands on. Yeah, no and, shit. Uh, uh, there's one secret, there's one secret to it, and uh, uh, I can tell you that, that uh, you, uh, the capsaicin in what creates the hot um, will be released double uh, when you uh, bring it to a boil and that's the only secret that I tell you uh, so it, it almost doubles the heat uh, when you uh, when you heat it up uh, quite a bit um, so I give it to friends and family uh, just to send them uh, just to have fun how they get on it it's really good. I, I mean, like I've like I mean that last batch you sent me, like I had it for quite a while, and it, it's really really good. But it is, I mean, I have to use it, not use it sparingly. And I love hot food. Even Alicia, Alicia loves hot shit, and she even tried it. She was like, "Holy cow!" But you're right; it does not taste um, like you said sour. It's not real acidic, uh, so it's not like a vinegar. Oh, I don't know. What's, like you said, I don't know what's in it. But it was, it is definitely full fucking value. So, <laughs> like, it is definitely full value. So, uh, Eric likes hot stuff. You want some, Eric? I don't like hot stuff. That's uh, <laughs> you're wrong. We'll get actually. you to try it. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> oh man, um, Eric. So, uh, where are where can we find you? You can find me on YouTube on Working Dog Radio, Van S K Nine on um, Instagram, uh, HRD Place K Nine on Instagram. Uh, Van S Canine Academy on Facebook for it's mostly pets, but uh, how about you? I am at Ted underscore Summers on the Instagram at Torchlight Canine on Instagram, letter K number nine. Uh, HRD uh, Police Canine on Instagram and Facebook. Um, Torchlight on Facebook is Torchlight One Word Canine. Uh, yeah, so all those places, and of course, this is the Working Dog Radio. We have our own one, Working Underscore Dog Underscore Radio. You should follow that. And uh, yeah, we have the YouTube channel, which is up. Uh, you'll be able to see some of my reactions when Rick is telling the story about his fucking hot sauce. <laughs> God, that stuff is—it's really good though. I need some more. And so yeah, uh, be sure to subscribe and like. Um, Rick, if people want to get a hold of you, where? How do we get a hold of you um, for seminars or anything like that? Facebook, first of all. You also can dial my number for advice. One nine hundred. I ask Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Let me do no, that right Facebook now. Facebook is the best way to get it. 
Okay. I was like, I mean, okay. we'll try. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the only way to, uh, to get a hold of me. Uh, the, the best way to get a hold of me. Uh, I have a... Uh, Everybody basically has a tendency to forget about their emails nowadays. Uh, everything is on freaking yeah. Facebook. I do a lot of my business uh, through Facebook and Messenger. Uh, once in a while, I get a, a message from somebody. Hey, Rick, you have a podcast, so check your emails on a regular basis. So that's what I, what I did. Um, the one thing I need to tell you, I will, uh, when we are finishing up, and I'm pretty proud of this, it has changed the, uh, uh, the detection uh, work uh, in the 2000, 2001. When 9-11 started uh, in 2001, uh, not even a month later, uh, my ex and I were working um, in Florida for a detection company, training dogs for explosives. Uh, I'm pretty handy, uh, I'm, a, I'm a tool guy, uh, I'm also uh, trying to experiment with dog training. Uh, I asked a friend in Florida, his name is John Hepler, if he could make me something where a ball would pop out of a machine. Uh, he made me one. We were training in a big building, a target building that was empty. And when he brought it, that, that machine, when he pushed the button, the tennis ball went away to the ceiling of the target building. Um, uh, we fine-tuned it and it became the first pop-up machine. I told my friend to put a, a patent on it, uh, but he had a couple of businesses that he was real busy with. He said, Nick, I don't have time for that shit. Uh, I'm not doing it. And he said, you do it. He said, no, I'm not doing it. It's your thing. Uh, I'm pretty proud of that because not even a year later, uh, Dan Reiter here in Wisconsin uh, started uh, selling uh, pop-up machines. And that's how it started. And now uh, everybody is using those kind of machines to make uh, uh, dogs uh, and get them the primary right from source. Quiet! That's the one thing I wanted to uh, tell the world. Excellent. That is fantastic. Yeah. Um, they've been around. Yeah, there. And now we've got new versions of them. They got boppers and they got droppers. Um, and yeah, where there's some <laughs> take their use a super light tool and hit the top of the fucking building. So yeah, you have to kind of dial it back a little bit. Um, this was one of those interviews that we have wanted to do for a long time. Um, I'm super glad we got the chance to do it. Um, but yeah, I, I really appreciate it. It's been awesome. I enjoyed it quite Good. a bit. Thanks. Awesome. Now go eat. It's time to eat dinner. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we'll see everybody on the uh, 13th with uh, our buddy from TCSO here, Mick Bonet. So yeah, everybody, thanks. We'll talk to everybody soon. Somebody that's been with us since the beginning of this entire program has been Arno from ALM Equipment out in Vegas. Arno does a fantastic job making suits, tugs, and sleeves. Uh, one of our favorite things that we use at HRD is the hidden sleeve from Arno, and I've got multiple suits, and so does Travis. We use them at the kennel all the time. ALMK9Equipment.com is where you can find it. Be sure to use the discount code WDRADIO for 10% off your first order. Tripwire Operations Group, man, what a great group of guys. It's an internationally recognized leading provider of product services and training for federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies and military units. 
Tripwire Operations Group is an ATF licensed explosive materials manufacturer, importer, exporter, and dealer with a wide range of explosive products to offer, including custom kits. These kits are great for detection canine imprinting, and they have three different kits to choose from. The use of all three kits combined creates a complete explosive threat package for canine teams. Be sure to check them out. If you go there to pick up your explosives, they will let you blow some crap up. Check them out at tripwireops.org. Lastly, this music that you hear uh, has been graciously granted to be used by us by Brother Deeg. He's a fantastic artist out of Louisiana. Uh, guy does a magnificent job. He's been through Tulsa a couple times and I've seen him live. Be sure to hit him up at brotherdeeg.net, D-E-G-E.net. Uh, or go to Apple iTunes or Spotify or wherever and download and buy CDs. Be sure to hit him up, buy some shirts and support the guy. The guy does a fantastic job and uh, he's a privateer kind of like we are. So brotherdeeg.net, D-E-G-E, hit him up. This episode and this entire series and this podcast is co-produced and co-owned by Alicia Brandt. You got your reasons and I got my wants. Still got that feeling but I'm too old to die young. Working Dog Radio was graciously granted permission to use this music by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at brotherdeeg.blogspot.com. That's spelled brother, D-E-G-E, dot blogspot.com. Be sure to buy him a beer at Amazon, iTunes, or CD Baby, or anywhere you stream your music. Working Dog Radio was edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt.